hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched the 1985 crime drama Witness, a request from Patreon subscriber Suwan. Directed by the wonderful Peter Weir, it stars Harrison Ford as a Philadelphia detective who must protect a young Amish boy who witnessed a murder. Lucas Haas plays the boy, while Kelly McGillis plays his mother, an Amish woman named Rachel. This is perhaps the most high-profile Hollywood movie depicting the lives of Amish people, and uh, I love this film. I saw it once, I'd seen it once before as a teenager, in the years before I started keeping lists of all the movies that I see, so this is a pre-2008 movie for me, which is when I started. I think it was probably 2007. If I remember correctly, this was the first movie my parents saw on a date and we got the dvd from netflix and all watched it together my parents are now divorced so i did not double check this information with either of them but uh it was a like very memorable watching experience to all watch this movie together and have them be like oh we saw this in the 80s when it was in the movie theater and um i remembered really really liking it but i didn't remember very much of the detail of this film at all to the degree that, like, we got this request a month or two ago, and this was before all of the recent police brutality protests. And last week when we were announcing what we were going to be doing this week's episode on, I literally was like, oh, wait, this is a movie about a cop. Like, I had, I had forgotten this because it was so long ago that I saw this movie. And I remembered, like, four different images from the film, and that was it but actually found it to be quite fascinating as a movie to watch at this time because it's quite critical of the police without being like a revolutionary picture. I mean, there's a lot of elements happening in this film because although technically the way we've framed the description of this film is it's a crime thriller starring Harrison Ford as a detective. Harrison Ford, he is not given like a prominent place in the first act, right? Because you start off with the Amish characters, uh, the young mother, Rachel, and her son. And you see a lot of that stuff from the son's perspective and you see the crime and then you're introduced to him as the detective. And all the stuff with Harrison Ford doing crime solving is fairly conventional crime thriller stuff. But the rest of the film is sort of an anthropological drama about Amish living and a romance. So (laughs) it's an interesting combo. Yeah, and so, like, what I remembered from the movie was, like, the shot of Lucas Haas, who plays the kid's face, like, in the bathroom, this, like, public bathroom where he witnesses a crime. I didn't even remember what the crime was. Like, it's a murder. I just remembered his face in the stall as he's, like, traumatized by this. I remembered that... Uh, Viggo Mortensen participates in building a barn. He does not have a line of dialogue in this movie, but his face appears frequently throughout. There's a scene where Harrison Ford, like, sees the lady naked and then walks away. I remember that. And I remember there's a a bit with a grain silo at the end that's very dramatic, which we will discuss. And, like, that was my sort of visual memory of this movie. I mean, this proves that the cinematography and framing in this movie is very effective. And also this movie is like famous for having a barn in it. Like I literally, I had never heard of this film until it was requested. I couldn't have told you this film existed, but I knew that one of the key moments in Harrison Ford's career was a scene where he builds a barn. (laughs) It is just part of the Harrison Ford mythos along with, you know, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's fascinating as a part of that mythos. I have never, still never seen an Indiana Jones movie. One day we will talk about them on this oh, podcast. They're so good. With problematic elements. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, I've seen all the Star Wars movies. And I've not seen any of the 90s stuff when he had a sort of like weird career turn at that point into being like, maybe I'll do some dramas and romances and like be funny kind of. But this is definitely like the most sort of like serious acclaimed drama he did, I think, that wasn't in the a genre mode. It was nominated for a ton of Oscars. He was nominated for an Oscar for it. And at the time, the reviews were all like, this is the best, you know, Harrison Ford has ever been. Oh my god, he's like doing a real role because he was known as the Star Wars guy, right? But it's interesting how similar, like he's not a hugely varied performer, like in his roles. And in this, obviously he's got a really good character, like the character is very well-rounded. But I actually wouldn't say, oh, this is a significantly better performance than Indiana Jones or Han Solo. Well, <laughs> what a different kind of film. The movie does so well is that it uses him perfectly, right? Yes. Like, it understands his abilities as an actor and a movie star and deploys them in an incredibly smart way. And he does a really good job of modulating the performance in a way that suits the tone of the movie. Like, it's not particularly melodramatic. But he has he has a couple, like quips and like funny looks that totally feel like Han Solo e. Yeah, just I mean he's got that different. goofiness. <laughs> yeah, but part of what I think is so interesting about the movie is that obviously a lot of it relies on him and his star power and the fact that he is so hot in this movie, just like tremendously, tremendously hot. But as you say, the first chunk of the film, well, he doesn't show up for like 15, 20 minutes. And even after he does show up, there's at least 10 minutes where you're really not seeing the action from his point of view. Which is a really smart choice in terms of using his star power because you really, you really get embedded in the lives of the mother and the child first instead of, because like otherwise the traditional framing of this would be, here's the protagonist and then the woman is the love interest and she is already going to be sort of backgrounded because she's not as famous. Right. So... I think we should step back and give a little background about the movie now because there's stuff to say about the way he's introduced that has to do with the way the screenplay was originally written that is quite interesting. So, as we mentioned, this movie was directed by uh, Peter Weir, the the great Peter Weir, a wonderful director who is Australian and started out in the 70s making films in Australia, the most famous of which that um, some listeners might have seen is... Picnic and Hanging Rock, uh, which I saw recently for the first time, and is this very kind of dreamy, trippy movie that takes place in the 19th century about these uh, teenage girls who vanish at Hanging Rock. It's one of those movies where you're, you watch it and you kind of can't believe that a man made it. Like, it's very influential on Sofia Coppola. It's a very interesting movie. And then made several other films there, and then this was his first film in Hollywood. And then he went on to have this really I mean he made Dead Poet Society Dead Poet Society The Truman Show and then my beloved Master and Commander yeah and I love Dead Poet Society so we both have have a film of his that's very sort of special to us I always think of him as a Hollywood director who is like the epitome of what a sort of classical Hollywood director of the studio system should be in that he's an incredibly gifted filmmaker 
he's working in a kind of classical style. There's nothing too audacious about his filmmaking technique, but he's just really, really he's good. He's very sensitive. Yeah. His career is like less prolific Spielberg without the schmaltzier elements of Spielberg when he just goes off the rails. Yeah. And he he is an artist. Like you watch this movie and there's clear, massive artistry going into it, but it's not particularly showy. The story has genre elements. All of the f- big films we were just discussing have genre elements. Like Dead Poet Society is obviously like a boarding school movie. And, you know, Master Commander is a movie about people on the ocean, right? But they have their distinct flavor as well. And it's just, he's just not the kind of filmmaker who exists anymore because these types of movies don't get made anymore, right? Which is something we talk about a lot. But if you have this level of skill and ability, either you just toil away at like indie movies because you want to be an artist or you wind up making Marvel movies because you get poached. And one of the things I found so satisfying about watching this movie is that it's like a work of cinema, but also clearly designed to be watched by a large number of people as opposed to some of the movies that come out today that I really like that aren't meant to be alienating exactly, but are like art films, you know? I mean, this kind of made me think of like when you watch, you know, a sitcom from the 80s or 90s or something and the characters are talking about a date movie. Yeah. And this would be a date movie where it's like a respectable piece of cinema where you've got something for the boys and something for the girls. I mean, it literally was. <laughs> and it's like a movie for grown-ups. And it literally is. We are going to be talking about the sex appeal of the two leads because it's a very, very key element of this film's success. We will talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't feel like it's pandering, particularly. No. And the genesis of the screenplay is fascinating. It was written by Earl W. Wallace and William Kelly and Pamela Wallace, who was married to Earl, uh, has a story credit as well. And these were all TV writers, primarily. Like, if you look at their IMDb pages, it's pretty wild this movie is on there because it won the Oscar for uh, original screenplay. And you're just like, what? Like, that? Just, based on all this other TV stuff, it's just not something you would expect. And it was inspired by, according to Wikipedia, an episode of the show Gunsmoke that two of the writers had written in the 1970s. And the original draft was 182 pages long, which is very long for a screenplay. There's a lot of Amish stuff. They cut it down. And then Peter Weir did a lot of editing on it himself. And a friend of ours tipped us off to the fact that there were a lot of changes. And I, before we recorded this read a draft that I found online that I think was kind of in the middle process of these various drafts. So it's not the really long one, but it was clearly like much before they actually shot the thing because it changed so much from the thing that I read, which I'll link to this in the show notes if people are interested. I found it fascinating the bones of the thing are all there. It's not like there's some wild, you know, huge changes. But basically every scene, most of the dialogue is changed to some degree. There's a lot of sort of obvious stuff that gets cut out because Peter Weir clearly was just like, well, we don't need that. Like, that's, you know, silly. But the biggest sort of substantial change is when the characters are introduced at the beginning... The Harrison Ford character is introduced as an internal affairs 
agent. And he's, like, on this quest to figure out who the dirty cops are in the narcotics department. And there's all this stuff that's going on about how, like, the other cops don't like him because he's the rogue, you know, like, the good guy. And none of that is in the movie. They cut all of it out. Which is so smart because he does realize that the people who have committed this murder are police officers and goes and tells his boss that this is the case and then realizes that it's this big conspiracy and he has to get out of there or he's going to get, you know, killed. Which puts him in a position of, like, he's the good guy, but he's also by this point become kind of infatuated with this woman, so it's not as much of, like, you know, Cape Crusader type thing. And it just simplifies the story a lot, as opposed to, like, I'm on a quest to purify the police department, which is more. I mean, from what like. you've said, it just sounds like the original draft of this was very heavy on unnecessary explanations, and there are no unnecessary explanations in this film, which evolves very organically and introduces the characters in a very sort of gradual and thoughtful and sensitive way. And especially with like Harrison Ford, who is known for playing morally ambiguous, charming heroes. Here he is, if anything, not even morally ambiguous so much as shit. <laughs> and he gets away with a lot of his behaviour because he's just, you know, he's just very good looking. But I mean, when you first meet him, he's trying to catch this person who's committed this murder. And his primary detective, uh, his primary detective technique is just racial profiling. Because the boy's been like, well the murderer was black. So he just goes to like a bar to round up the usual suspects and be like, well, was it this guy? Was it this guy? And I was just sitting there like biting my nails. Like he's never seen a black guy before. He's not going to be able to identify someone out of a lineup. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Harrison Ford, maybe not the greatest detective, but by comparison to the other detectives, he's positively angelic because of course they are all wildly corrupt. And that is, as Morgan said, kind of the impetus for him to go and Uh, kind of hide out in this Amish village uh, with Rachel and little Samuel. And even though, even then, the fact that he is a cop with a gun is massively unpopular with all these pacifists. And he does end up bringing chaos and danger to their village. Well, the thing that's kind of most interesting to me about the movie from a sort of like thematic perspective is the way it deals with violence, right? So you start off with this child witnessing this murder that's depicted in a very graphic and upsetting way. Um, And Lucas Haas, who's a baby in this movie, is so good. And great performance. Like, great, great child performance. And he's not playing it... Like, he's clearly been affected by seeing this, but it's not like he's going into, like, melodramatic, you know, spasms or whatever throughout the rest of the movie. It's just... He's, like, quietly freaked out. And then there's this scene in the bar with the profiling, which in the script is... The way they describe the guy they drag out to the car to show to the kid is uh, troublesome at best. So clearly the movie, Peter Weir again was like, it's not like they're going in on the profiling and brutality stuff too much, but watching the film, I certainly felt like part of his point was that this is bad, right? Yeah. 
I mean, I think rather than it being a film that's being like a polemic that's trying to make a really big point about like the police, Peter Weir has just been like, here's a reasonably realistic depiction of the way someone like this would behave. So you've yeah. got this character who their kind of key personality trait is they, they love the law and they want to be righteous and they want to do right. But at the same time, they're fucking half-assing this investigation and like racially profiling these random guys because they were just hanging around in a bar. Yes. And... Then as the movie goes on, and he winds up in Amish country, the weight that the movie puts on the terror and evil of guns is really stuck out to me as someone who's watched a lot of American movies where people just shoot people like crazy all the time because that's, you know, how action movies work. There's a scene where... The gun is, like, in a drawer. His, his you know, service weapon is in a drawer. And Lucas Haas finds it and kind of picks it up and doesn't really get that this is a dangerous thing or something that he shouldn't be doing. And um, Harrison Ford is like, no, no, no. Like, you cannot do that. And takes the bullets out and is like, okay, you can look at it without the bullets when I'm here, but, like, that's it. And clearly in his mind is trying to be, like, this is a safe way for you to engage with this. Like, okay, you know, but you you cannot hold a loaded gun. And then Rachel Kelly McGillis comes in and is, like, he can't hold a gun ever because that's dangerous and bad and evil. And he's quite chastised. They're both quite chastised by having been looking at this thing. And it's clear the whole community views this. I mean, they don't have guns, right? So it's this, like, horrible object. Yeah. I mean, they really lean into the pacifist elements yeah. of, like, the Amish beliefs. And there's, like, a couple of scenes where they have really explicit conversations about it and its merits. Yeah. And then later, when inevitably the sort of other cops do show up and have, you know, guns, like, huge shotguns, I felt like, more frightened of that than I would have in another film because I hadn't been desensitized to them, right? And so when they show up with them, I was like, oh no, <laughs> like, holy shit. And there's another scene later in the movie where you have sort of tourists provoking or failing to provoke these other Amish people from the community because they won't respond. And Harrison Ford basically freaks out and, like, beats them up because he's so aggravated and he's mad about something else, too. And it's not depicted as, like, well, he showed them. Like, he, like, breaks this guy's nose and there's blood everywhere and it's really awful. And it just felt like the movie was handling all of that in a way that didn't trivialize it, which I really appreciated. And it was particularly notable to me in once I read the screenplay because <laughs> not like some of that is in there, but then the moment, for instance, where um, the kid finds the gun and Ford is like, oh no, no, no. He says to him in the screenplay, tell you what, I'm going to let you handle this one, but only if you promise not to say anything to your mama. I've got a feeling she wouldn't understand. And the kid smiles at him and is like, okay. And the description in the screenplay is, uh, he smiles. Then he gives the boy a playful John Wayne tough guy wink as he cocks and uncocks the pistol, <laughs> demonstrating the action. Like, what the fuck? 
Oh my god! I mean, you can really feel the energy of the, that script having evolved from an episode of Gunsmoke. Right. Just kind of the idea of a bad version of this movie where Harrison Ford is playing just a cowboy. And it also, like, just baked into that one exchange, it kind of indicates that in the original version. It was a much more traditional couple where Harrison Ford's character perhaps did not have very much respect for Kelly McGillis. Whereas one of the really remarkable things in this film, just from day one, is that Rachel is just like a really likeable and funny and unusual character. And of course she's unusual in the sense that you do not get movies where one of the main characters is an Amish mother. Right. <laughs> that's not really a demographic that's widely catered to in Hollywood for obvious reasons. But like, rather than Harrison Ford's character, Detective John Book, is obviously very easy to categorise because we've all seen a million pieces of media that star, you know, a taciturn, morally ambiguous detective. So he doesn't really need any kind of introduction at all. Whereas with Rachel... You know, she doesn't have a job, so you can't easily categorise her in the sense of, like, when characters are introduced by their job. And, like, her relationship to the child is just like, oh, here's a mum, which is a role which most movies in Hollywood don't understand because it's just like, well, someone needs to have a mother who just stands in the background. So instead, you know, they've made an actual effort to develop her personality while reaching that low bar. But um, you do really get the impression just from, like, the first third of the film when they're still kind of in the city talking about this crime. You know, you understand her sense of humour, kind of the way she observes John Book and perhaps disrespects some elements of his lifestyle but isn't overly judgmental. And the way that she can have conversations with people and get information out of them in just like a really intelligent way and you get a really good idea of the way her social skills work. And then once you go back to the settlement and they're on a different dynamic there's just this sort of quiet mockery she has towards him when he doesn't really understand how to live among the Amish. And then later on, once their relationship has developed, you can see her like quite unsubtly trying to figure out if he's marriage material or not, like if he's got any skills. It's just like, she's just a really well-drawn character. Yeah, I mean, the movie doesn't work if she isn't as well-written or, you know... Written in the sense that whatever made it to the screen is the dialogue that it is. And acted as she is. I mean, I think everything you say about her just feeling like a really distinct person is totally right. And she's obviously extremely concerned for her child, having witnessed this horrible thing. And when they're in the city, her primary concern is just getting him out of there. But once they get back home, you still see her interacting with him. And it's not like she's not still concerned for his well-being. But she just has her own life and concerns. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly how the movie manages to do it. Because it's not exceptionally complicated. They just pull it off really well. So that you get a sense of her as a person who's thinking about things and thinking about her relationships with people and the fact that she's really sexually interested in this guy is taken quite seriously, which doesn't often happen in movies in general or movies like this specifically. It's that famed internal life I've heard so much about. (laughs) Uh, One scene that really stuck out to me and there's a detail that was not in the screenplay is... 
you know, there's a scene where he's working on some carpentry thing and it's like, oh yeah, I, I'm a carpenter and she's interested in that. And that all is in there, but she's, the thing that's not is that she's brought him some lemonade and he's like, oh great, thanks. And drinks it all in one go. And some of it like drips down his neck and she's just like staring <laughs> at him. <laughs> and obviously like the way it's shot She's a very beautiful woman, and there is the scene I mentioned at the beginning where he sort of sees her with her top off, and, like, it's sexualizing her, right? In a way that I didn't find gross at all, but, like, she's clearly meant to look good. But the movie very much makes him look good, too, and you're supposed to understand him as, like, an object of desire for her almost more than the other way around in terms of the way the visual language of the movie is constructed, and from a male filmmaker, that's not often the case. And I think that is part of what makes the romance work so well, is that you get why he's appealing to her. And it's not just the physical stuff, like the dialogue between them is really good too, but part of it is that like she just thinks he's really hot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's really hot and he respects her. Like, because there's yeah. that scene where you know, they almost sleep together and then the next day he's like, you understand that if we'd made love, I would have to stay or you would have to leave. And it's like, they've thought about this very consciously, you know, etc. Well, and this scene that's so good where he's been, his car, like the battery's dead or it's broken down or something. And they've got it in a barn and he's working on it and she's holding the light for him and he gets the radio to come on and it's playing a Sam Cooke song and he's like, oh, yes, like, I, this is my favorite. And this is really novel for her because they don't have radios. And he, they dance to this song. And it's like they keep, keep almost kissing, but not quite. And then he'll kind of, like, make a joke to, like, diffuse the tension. And it's shot in such an amazing way. Just, like, it's just beautiful to look at, for one. But also, it's not making her look sexy right because the whole point of the scene is that she's like overwhelmed by this experience and that kind of stuff i think is what makes the romance work so well yeah it's a film that's like really consciously about grown-ups who are yeah. having thoughts um but also i feel like one thing that harrison ford's really good at is kind of body language that if you got it like even slightly wrong it wouldn't work it's kind of the, the confidence. Yes. Because that's one of the things people talk about with with like Han Solo a lot. You know, there's a point where he thinks he's going to leave and then he doesn't. And then he comes back to Rachel to give back his bullets for her to take. So like the gun's still safe symbolically. And he sort of like leans over and puts them in her hand. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> steamy. Yeah. I mean, it's again, just like they just don't make movies like this anymore. It just doesn't happen. It's so rare that you get romance about just, like, grown-up people. And obviously this is a thriller in some ways, but I think that's kind of a reductive way to talk about it because so much of the movie takes place in Amish country and it's just, like, about people having their little dramas, right? The barn-raising scene, which we mentioned, I think in the, like, original-original script was just, like, a casual mention and Peter Weir was like no I'm going to build a barn <laughs> on this movie well I think also like something Peter Weir really likes is um 
showing people kind of performing skilled tasks, Mm -hmm. which is something that I enjoy in all forms of fiction. I love to read books where, you know, you have like an extended cheese making scene or something, for example, big fan of Hannibal, which is a show about cooking. And um, in this, you have all his uh, sort of putting together of this barn and you get to see the whole process from beginning to end and kind of symbolically how it's all about the community coming together as is traditionally barn raising. Whereas obviously Harrison Ford is completely isolated. He is this one lone man who's trying to take on the police force with no allies. So it's like another element of the way their culture clash is so complete. Yes, definitely. And you see him gratified by the experience even though other men are kind of skeptical of him like they let him participate and he clearly enjoys it which is not something he's getting from his other life right you see morgan he's getting to make something instead of destroying something (laughs) (laughs) i mean literally there is a scene where the corrupt police chief says we're a cult like the Amish. <laughs> so there's the whole like pit, one line pitch of the movie. And I assume in meetings was like, it's like two subcultures and he experiences both of them. I mean, to be quite honest, I would not call myself anything remotely resembling an Amish expert, but this film was perhaps overly flattering. <laughs> yes. I mean, they definitely touched on the idea that, Rachel's family would thoroughly disapprove if she slept with slash married this outsider man. But on the whole, it's very much sort of um, like a flattering depiction of like, oh, here's how life could be if we went and lived in the farms kind of thing, um, which is obviously a very common fantasy everywhere, but especially in America, if you're like, well, the city's full of crime, we could just go and live like the olden times. And it's like, well, if you're Amish women don't have rights you generally can't go to the doctor and uh and you don't get to go to school after the eighth grade so on the whole (laughs) not a huge not hugely uh great lifestyle perhaps for most people it was interesting because like at the same time they had this uh, what i assume is probably quite a realistic depiction of the fact that there was all these tourists fucking nosying around these people's private business when they're just trying to live you know peaceful modest farming lives And everyone is coming around on tour buses. And unfortunately, one of the results of this film is that more people went around on tour buses wanting to gawk at the Amish because they'd (laughs) seen it in this romantic movie and were like, wow, what a great, exciting lifestyle. (laughs) I didn't learn anything from watching this film. (laughs) I mean, it definitely is a very rosy depiction. Although, as you say, there, there are a couple scenes, one in particular, where she really gets taken to task for like the possibility that she might be carrying on with this outsider man. But I think the reason it works for me is that the tone of the movie, although the romance is very romantic, the way the film is made is not massively sentimental. So it's more, it felt more to me like a film that's just sort of like, well, these people are living their lives and people just do that and you got to kind of carry on. So here, here's a movie about some people. And obviously it, there's constructed drama, right? But it didn't feel super romanticizing of the people to me exactly. I couldn't imagine watching this and being like, I wish I were an Amish person. 
episode. <laughs> Although obviously some people had that reaction, but um, it felt more thoughtful. And I part of what I like so much about it is that it's not patronizing in the way that it depicts the main female character, because it would also be very easy to have a sort of overly simplistic sort of pseudo-feminist story that is about a woman in this community that doesn't actually take that experience into account and is just like, well, you must be so miserable. And like, obviously there are problems, which like, and like, I'm so not an expert on this either. And, um, would be interested in watching a movie about those problems. But like people also just have to kind of live their lives. Right. And not everyone is hates it. Right. So I think it does a good job of having her not be someone who's like, I'm so oppressed and I have to leave, but also she's on a pushover. And I think it threads the needle in a pretty smart way, which is I think one of the big successes of the film. Yeah. I mean, I read an interview with Peter Weir that is not, like, directly about this film, but it was just an interesting insight into, like, his attitude. And the interviewer was just kind of asking him about, like, he uses a lot of what the interviewer describes as anthropological symbols and images in his movies. And Peter Weir just kind of basically talked about how he felt that as an Australian, he always is very conscious of the fact that he comes from stolen land and he thinks a lot about Aboriginal people and different people's attitudes towards nature and tradition and religion and like perceptions of life. And he also thinks about that in terms of Native Americans when he's making films in America. And I was just like, that is not how most people think. <laughs> no. It's a t- I mean, it's a testament to his thoughtfulness and sensitivity, right? Like, even if that's not the explicit text here. I would love to see a panel between him and George Miller, obviously another great Australian filmmaker. And when I was kind of looking up the cinematographer for this film, who was one of the Oscar nominees for this movie, um, John Seal has worked extensively with Peter Weir and also with George Miller. And um, he has a tremendous filmography, but I was interested to see that his final film was Mad Max Fury Road. Also the composer... Morris Jarr has also worked with both of them. He worked on one of the Mad Maxes. And I was particularly curious to look up who wrote the music for this because um, as Morgan and I were both discussing kind of before we started the podcast, this movie has quite a distinctive, very 1980s score of a type, which I do not think has, I mean, it's not necessarily aged badly, but it has certainly aged. (laughs) It does not have the timeless quality of certain other orchestral scores because there is a heavy amount of synth and it's always kind of peculiar to be watching something where there's a lot of like nature and also a lot of synth because that's not something that people really do anymore. But there was this period in the 80s where also I think the Harrison Ford movie The Fugitive had like acres of synthetic music. Um, and I was like, well, I wonder who did this. I wonder if there was someone who just did all the like electronic music for Harrison Ford movies in the 1980s. The answer was actually that it's Morris Jarr, who is a titan of cinema composition, has made the soundtracks for gajillions of movies, including Lawrence of Arabia. So he is known for like making really, really serious, like Dr. Zhivago, which is like one of the most iconic orchestral scores. And he was also like, well, I think next I shall master the synth. And one has to respect it. I was actually much less distracted by that than I was expecting to be. Because you mentioned it to me before I'd watched it. And I 
know exactly what you're talking about in the context of this movie, because yes, there is a synth. And also, anyone who watches movies from the 80s now, you will notice this, because it's everywhere, and it has aged so badly. But I feel like I've watched a couple recently-ish. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But there are some where the score is, like, wall-to-wall, and it's so egregious. I mean, this is more naturalistic because the way that he was using the synth was that it was it was playing music could either could easily have been in an orchestral score and it was combined with like a flute. And there were also elements that kind of sounded a bit like sort of maybe Irish or English, like slow folk music, which is kind of the classic type of music you have in the background of a historical romance blockbuster. So he I mean, he, he knew what he was about. And there's not actually a ton of score in the movie, which is interesting. No. Because so much of the movie is people having conversations, which is my favorite kind of film and drama. But they're sensible enough to not put any music in to a lot of that stuff. And so you just get the people talking and that lets you sort of form your own conclusions about what's going on without any music. I mean, there is music in it, obviously, but um, it was much more restrained than I was expecting which I appreciated. Shall we talk about the sort of last set piece now before we wrap up? Because I think that yes. is like an amazing sequence. So, I mean, we've spoiled a lot of it, but if you don't want to know how it ends, you should turn off here. The way the conspiracy is sort of unfolded is that there's this police chief who is corrupt, and then the two cops who committed the murder, one of whom is played by Danny Glover who is very effective in a pretty small role. And then there's a white guy who is not someone I recognize. And then Harrison Ford has a partner who is also a black cop who they wind up killing because he knows that they're corrupt too. And it felt to me very deliberate that the movie is clearly trying to not engage with the question of race very much, right? Like they put one black guy on each side. Yeah, I was like, ah, I see what you've done here, as is so often done in uh, American crime dramas. And even, like, there's the police brutality scene at the beginning, which, again, in the script is, like, not written as such. And Weir does a better job with that than than he could have, I think, but it's still not a very big thing. So that is one of the sort of flaws of the movie to me, I think, is that it's, it's just not interested in this issue particularly. But... It's still very much about these cops being bad. And they finally wind up figuring out where Harrison Ford is because he's been hiding out with the Amish, but he beats the guy up in the middle of the street. And there's this massive set piece at the end where they're trying to find him. And he's like hiding, running around and hiding in this big barn. And specifically like runs up the ladder of the side of the grain silo and winds up, like, drowning the white cop with the corn from the grain silo, which really made an impression on me as a teenager, because it was one of the only things I remembered from this movie in detail. But watching it again, I was like, oh yeah, I remember how great this sequence is. It's pretty long, but it's all about, like, the space that is available to these people, and you really feel the danger that they're all in. And it 
fits in with the movie because so much of it is about this physical space that he's been inhabiting that's sort of alien to him. And I just thought it was like masterfully, masterfully shot. Uh, I was really impressed by it this time around and remembered being so the first time too. Yeah. Good film. And then the little boy like rings the rings the bell and the corrupt chief winds up like bringing Harrison Ford out at gunpoint and is going to arrest him but all the Amish people have come to the sound of the bell and are like well this isn't going to work and so you have a scene of sort of like the community defeating the threat of violence which I think is a really nice way to end I mean it's a bit it's a bit pat but it's satisfying in terms of the other thematic stuff that's been happening. And then, of course, the lovers must part because Romeo and Juliet, etc. etc. And there was apparently, like, two pages of the script where they explain their feelings to each other and then break up. And Peter Weir was like, I really don't think that we need that. Another, another <laughs> classic example of the I love you, I know. Right. They do the thing, which is, like, my favorite thing in movies, where at the end of a movie, people, the two people just, like, look at each other and don't even need to speak because it's just so deeply understood, whatever they need to be saying. Todd Haynes does this all the time and it's so good. But uh, apparently this was just really confusing for everyone that this might be effective. And then of course it was. (laughs) So the quote from the interview I found with Peter Weir, which is from like 1998, He says, on witness, that caused more waves than any other changes, which is the end deletion. At the end of the movie, when Harrison came to say goodbye to Kelly McGillis, the original script had him explaining why he was leaving, and she explained how how she was feeling. I cut the two pages and said, if I've done my job, they should be able to just look at each other. The writers and producer were concerned the audience wouldn't understand, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head of production at Paramount, Flew out to talk about <gasps> the it. The Quibi guy. The fucking CEO of Quibi. Jeffrey Katzenberg. Oh my god. Quibi man. Okay, so, sorry. Continue. Jeff asked me to explain the scene. And after I did, he said, that'll work. <laughs> he oh flew god, out. Every, every executive. Every executive in Hollywood. Uh, okay. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. The idea that... I mean, I get if you're the writer and you're precious about your material, right? And you're like, oh, don't cut it. But the idea that the producer would be like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> like, these really hot people flirting and gazing at each other this whole time, it's just not, it's not going to be sufficient. We need to have all of the explanation. Oh. But it sums up what's so great about the movie to me, which is that the dialogue that remains from the original script or that he wrote himself or whoever wrote that wound up in there is all really smart and good or almost all. But having now read that screenplay and again, like if you're interested in screenwriting at all, I cannot recommend highly enough watching this movie and reading the script because so much of what he did that was so smart was delete things. And what is left is this sort of simple as sounds condescending, but like it's just a kind of straightforward, smart move story that's really emotionally effective i think and sometimes that's all you gotta do sometimes that gets it done and you gotta just know what to pair back so good job to him final notes any last word on witness um 
Well, I think one thing we were going to talk about that we've kind of touched on with Harrison Ford, but not with Kelly McGillis, is the whole date movie element of there being something for the boys and for the girls. And something that I found very amusing kind of when looking at the casting and subsequently the reviews for this film is just the way the ways they were describing Kelly McGillis. Yes. Um, so basically they were like, well, we need to we need to cast someone who is, you know, convincingly an Amish woman and also is convincingly hot. And they, they just couldn't find anyone because American women are just so fakes. So they were like, we're going to have to go to Italy and cast an Italian woman because I guess that's how Hollywood logic works. And then, of course, Kelly and Gillis came in and they were like, you're amazing. You look good in a bonnet and you can act. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, I read, I just like, I read a review where it was just like, I think it was Roger Ebert's review. And they were just talking about kind of like the subtle eroticism of such a natural woman. And it's like, periodically, you will see a movie, usually historically a historical movie, where people get very excited over the fact that the lead actress is uniquely womanly. Uh, this happened with Kate Winslet in Titanic. And what they actually mean <laughs> is that she's not wearing visible makeup and she's not really thin. <laughs> but so many words are wrapped around this concept <laughs> to like really try and find like a spiritual reason for why you're finding a kind of milkmaid looking woman attractive. And it's like Kelly McGillis, excellent actress, good role in this movie conventionally beautiful but she's just not not really thin and it just it just made me sad for the fact that straight men are not allowed to find any demographic of women attractive (laughs) because like as we all know it's acceptable to be attracted to pretty much a man who looks like a rat that's been dragged out of a sewer. <laughs> like, there there are mainstream, like, sex symbol men where it's like, that is Bigfoot, you know? <laughs> and with women, it's like, all the hot women who are conventionally seen as sex symbols literally just all look like Jessica Rabbit because you're only allowed that demographic. And then occasionally, Kelly McGillis will arrive and everyone will be like, you know, I do quite like a natural beauty, which is code for like a size four or something (laughs) and it's just like those poor bastards the poor straight men yeah pity the straight men that's our concluding note (laughs) it's so true though you read the reviews i read a couple and i was like oh my goodness this is I would say that this is not And this something... is the woman who is like, this is like the hot woman from Top Gun. Right. She's literally like yeah. the female character in Top Gun that everyone forgets exists because it's a homoerotic movie. But like, <laughs> it's not like it was a huge stretch for her to literally one calendar year later segue into being like the hot girl that seduces Tom Cruise in like a blockbuster action movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, really... Just breaking everyone's brain with that. Like, who could possibly have imagined? Oh my god. Yeah. Well, she's great in this movie. Congratulations to her on her performance and natural beauty, I guess. (laughs) I would say that's, like, not a way you're allowed to write movie reviews anymore, but David Edelstein uh, has a job. So, (laughs) I mean... I think I've probably seen stuff along those lines in the past, like, month. Yeah, it's it's grim. Thank you so much again to Shuan for requesting this. I was so delighted 
to get this request because this is one of those movies I've always kind of meant to rewatch because I saw it so long ago and had such fond memories of it. And it really, like, more than lived up to my expectations. I had such a good time seeing it again. I really recommend it. It is available to rent on many platforms. So if you would like to see it, that option is available to you. And if you would like to force us to watch a movie of your choosing, you can do that on Patreon. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.